This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You may know the stock show complex in North Denver as a place to see a rodeo or a dog show. But it will soon be a place where year-round scientists try to address world hunger and other food issues. This project is an expansion of the current grounds along I-70, which will entail some industrial cleanup. But eventually, it'll be a 250-acre research campus that includes commuter rail, farmers' markets on the river, a concert venue. Former Obama administration agriculture secretary Tom Vilsack is helping lead this effort along with his wife. And, Secretary, welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. So the plan is to create this educational and commercial area that quote, celebrates the West for the next 100 years. This is a collaboration with Colorado State University. Can you paint a picture of what this will look like and feel like? Well, initially, I've got a two-year-old grandson who is into diggers, all things contract-oriented. And so he would have a field day in the first part of this uh, complex. A number of buildings being constructed, uh, new environmental stewardship uh, being incorporated into this uh, into this facility, zero waste uh, goal. Uh, so eventually, you'll see a number of new buildings. Uh, Colorado State, for example, is responsible for building three new buildings. One will be an equine center uh, that will be focused on equine health, uh, and it will essentially be a, a research uh, opportunity for. Uh, for the importance of horses in, in the Colorado tradition and history. I'll say there's a fair amount of research in horses and horse health that translates into human health, which we've covered on this program. Right. So these are not separate entities. So that's one. Uh, second is a water center, uh, a collaborative effort, I think, with Denver Water uh, to really focus on the challenge that Colorado faces. Uh, the reality is you're going to continue to see growing communities. Uh, those communities are going to continue to need more and more water. Uh, agriculture, an important aspect of Colorado's economy wants to continue. Uh, it uses water. Uh, industry and business will need water. And the question is whether or not there will be sufficient water resources available for expanded cities, continue to maintain an, your agricultural economy, and to build uh, an industrial economy. And the uh, third? And the third is a, is a, is, is a center that is dedicated uh, to a, a number of issues involving food. Uh, educating people about uh, the connection between Colorado's history and agriculture, uh, incubating new uh, food businesses. Uh, perhaps it'll be a the food truck university location, uh, a way in which we can take a look at uh, all things connected to food and eventually make Denver uh, the Silicon Valley of, of food and food in, uh, innovation. Wait, what do you mean a food truck university? That is to groom the future food truck entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's part of it. Okay. Uh, and, and the question is, how do you, how do you continue? Continue to look for ways to provide food conveniently to people. What you're seeing here in the United States and what you're seeing around the world is convenience matters. People want uh, their food and they want it when they want it. Uh, but the reality is sometimes that doesn't necessarily equate with nutritious, uh, good for you kind of food. Uh, so the question is whether or not uh, this center uh, can help facilitate a better understanding of how we can be both nutritionally uh, sound and, and also uh, provide convenience. And there is a dimension to this that deals with global hunger. How do you see the scientists addressing that on this campus in North Denver? Well, it ties into water. Uh, the reality is if, if we're going to continue to grow uh, and produce the food that we need, we're going to continue to have to look at ways in which we can deal with water resources. Uh, with a changing climate, with a warming temperatures uh, around the world, you're going to see uh, larger evaporations, more intense storms, less uh, reliable sources of water in many parts of the world. 
how are we going to continue to grow? Uh, we're going to have to increase food production by 50 to 70% in the next 35 to 40 years in order to meet the needs of 9 to 10 billion people. Uh, and that's going to have to be done in a, in, a t- in a climate that isn't necessarily conducive to producing more food. So that's going to put a, a tremendous burden on the research side of, of agriculture. There are concerns that this expansion and the the other changes in this part of Denver, which involve I-70, for instance, uh, and a lot of gentrification, frankly, uh, the increasing cost of housing, that, that this project um, is going to dramatically change that neighborhood and might displace those who currently live there. It's one of the last affordable places in Denver where you can get a single family home. I think it's going to be important uh, for the project to to create and develop a strong relationship with the community. And one of the things that Christy, my wife, will be focused on is the educational and community building component of this of this project. There are ways to incorporate the community, to support the community, to create new job opportunities within the community. There are also ways in which the community can be connected to the river. The South Platte is a, an important uh, component of this overall plan. I think uh, Colorado State's vision and, and uh, the Denver officials' vision of this is that there will be a, a better, closer relationship with that river. Uh, better understanding of the role that it plays in uh, today's uh, Denver area, but also in, in the history of the of the state. Uh, so I think there are ways in which uh, some of the concerns can be dealt with and met, uh, particularly focused on the schools and the and the children who are going to school there, having a better understanding of agriculture, having a better understanding of food, having a better understanding of the environment, having a better understanding of of the role that water plays in their life. Uh, All of that leads to a generation of people living in this state uh, who respect and understand and appreciate uh, the multiple uses of water, uh, better conservation, better reuse technology, uh, better opportunities to figure out ways to use uh, water most efficiently. Uh, And I think we're going to, in order to meet the demand that Colorado will have, you're going to have to figure out how to do all of that. You're just listen- to give you a sense of this. Ryan. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me just say that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, the voice you're hearing other than mine is uh, former Agriculture Secretary in the Obama administration, Tom Vilsack. He's now leading this big project to rehab the stock show complex in North Denver. W- w- water is uh, often referred to as in terms of acre feet. Uh, yes. The amount of... Uh, hard, to, hard to picture sometimes. Well, it's yeah. 320, almost 326,000 gallons of water is an acre foot of water. In order to meet the Colorado need, we're going to need about a million acre feet of water, which is 326 billion gallons of additional water. So we have to figure out ways to conserve that, to reuse existing water so that we get multiple uses out of the same gallon, uh, creating new ways uh, to use water more efficiently in order to meet the growing needs of a growing population in cities and be able to maintain the agricultural economy that's so important to this state. And that is part of what will happen at this campus in North Denver. I want to say just for some context, this is about a $1.1 billion project, most of it paid for by voters uh, who passed this, uh, gosh, just several years ago, and uh, also Colorado State University, Denver, the state is kicking in some money here as well. Um so it's, it's an aggressive plan it, yeah, it for did. an amb- ambitious community and an ambitious state. And I think it, the importance of what's happening here extends beyond the borders of Denver and Colorado. Because if you can figure out better utilization of water, that's going to have repercussions globally. 
if you can figure out new and creative ways to, to create nutritious food and make it convenient, that's going to impact business development in this area, which is going to allow you to expand significantly exports. So there are a tremendous economic and environmental purposes that can be served by this complex. Is there a complex like this elsewhere in the country, do you think? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there are bits and pieces of all of this, but nothing in the same location that also combines entertainment, sports. Uh, of course, the stock show will continue to uh, to to welcome visitors over the, over the course of the year. Uh, this is a tremendous opportunity for the city of Denver to to really put its its uh, its mark, if you will, and to be that Silicon Valley of food and agriculture. Silicon Valley of food. I'd like to talk uh, just a bit before we go about your former job, a big one, agriculture secretary in the Obama administration. I think you were the longest serving cabinet secretary in his administration. Uh, what was still on your to-do list when you left that agency in January? Well, one thing that Colorado is certainly concerned about is the ability to adequately finance our force uh, so that they can be preserved and, and uh, restored and make more resilient. Forests. Yeah. Forests. Uh, the reality is that way we, which we currently fund our force, we're spending about 60 to 65 percent of the Forest Service budget on simply putting out fires. Uh, and the problem with that is that we're not putting the money into restoration and, and resiliency efforts, which would reduce the, the number and the severity of future fires. So we have been trying to encourage Congress to look at a different way to fund forest fires, particularly those major forest fires that you get every year, the 1% to 2% of fires that consume 30 to 40% of your budget. Uh, we think that they are natural disasters just in the same way a tornado or hurricane is and should be funded in the same way instead of through the operating budget of the Forest Service. Mm. That was a real big issue that we tried to get done that didn't quite get finished. And do you see a future for it in the next administration here? Well, I'm deeply concerned about it because the next administration has, has proposed significant reductions to the to uh, the USDA uh, budget, and, and that's going to have an impact not just on the Forest Service but on every other aspect of what USDA does in rural areas. It's going to significantly were it to be passed by Congress, and I hope it isn't. Uh, it would severely cripple economic opportunity in in rural areas, in particular. Uh, you took on tackling the opioid crisis in the final years of your job. Um, I'm curious why that was a job for the Ag Secretary. Well, I, I went to the president and indicated that uh, my team was functioning so well at USDA that I was here were days when I didn't have as much to do as I would like. And he asked me to take on this opportunity uh, and this challenge. And I did it in personally because my mom suffered with prescription drug addiction and alcoholism. And I certainly understand the pain of addiction. Uh, but I didn't understand at the time I took on this opportunity, this challenge, how, how severe and significant it was throughout the United States. Uh, we're losing more people for, from opioid abuse and use uh, than we do in, in automobile accidents uh, every year. And we're, we're almost losing as many as we lose in gun violence. And it is a, it's an epidemic that that knows no bounds and no borders. It, it, it affects the rich. It affects the poor. It affects men. It affects women. It affects young. It affects old. Uh, it affects uh, everyone. Uh, and the reality is that it started very innocently with the prescribing of pain medications. It seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Uh, the drug industry basically told us that these medications were not addictive. Turns out they were wrong. Um, and doctors were using them uh, in order to satisfy the, the needs uh, of pain relief for, for patients. And fighting the epidemic is something that you have heard the new administration talk uh, a fair bit about as well. Thank you very much, Secretary, for being with us. You bet. So that's former U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, now helping lead the effort to address global hunger and many other food issues. 
In a project that rehabs 250 acres in North Denver, that area will become an innovation and agricultural hub through a partnership with Colorado State University. And why don't we stay in North Denver for this next story? When your high school is a stone's throw away from the most polluted neighborhood in the country, it can become a living laboratory. A national analysis of environmental risk calls attention to this area of North Denver, and a teacher there had her class write and record a podcast about this. A CPR education reporter, Jenny Brundine, found the experience prompted some students to really think about where they live. Beth Sanchez, Jose Roca, and Christian Lobo Lafour aren't in a typical classroom. All right. Are you guys happy with that, or do you want to do it again? I cannot say that word. Gentrification? Gen- gentr- gentrification. They're in a souped-up sound studio at Corky Gonzalez Library in North Denver. Yeah, it's overly scripted. So just try The students to... have their heads bowed to their phones, but they aren't messing around on Snapchat. They're reading scripts they've written off their phones. The topic is Globeville, a neighborhood bordering what some people call the mouse trap where I-25 and I-70 meet. It has a legacy of industrial pollution and now gentrification. Globeville is just northeast of their Montessori Junior Senior High School in the Sunnyside neighborhood of North Denver. It's relevant. It's immediate. It's right next door. It's actually your neighborhood. In other words, the topic is gold for a teacher like Rachel Balcom, who looks exactly for those types of learning opportunities that bust out of the classroom. Her class has been studying environmental justice and resource use throughout U.S. history, how money, land, water, oil are all distributed. She says it can be hard for students to see the connection between what happened 100 years ago and now. So why not study the Globeville neighborhood next door? The students toured Globeville with a community group. Some studied the old Asarco smelter, how the area became a Superfund site because of lead, arsenic, cadmium, and zinc pollution. The podcast continues as the students offer their assessments. And it made the whole area a, a really bad and unfair place to live. And those poor residents, a lot of them actually are going with, like, lung cancer and getting a whole bunch more diseases because of where they live. Yeah, and that that was even before I-70 and I-25 was built, and that just made it, like, even worse. Others studied Globeville's immigrant background and gentrification. Still others, the government response to issues in the area. Teacher Rachel Balcom. Of course, the goal is for them to figure out what are the other options moving forward. Once the issue is immediate for them, they care about the answer to that question. Think about speaking performance. The day has arrived. The class listens to the finished product together. I agree. also The class giggles at the sometimes awkward, stilted nature of the podcast. In their post-listening analysis, they're critical of themselves. The details, the flow, they say the group should have worked more closely together to stitch the whole story up. But they say they learned a lot about pollution, about how community design and health are connected. Malcolm asks if they want to try a podcast again. Rather than an essay or rather than more traditional forms? Yeah. Yeah, Most like this new way of learning. Others? Like me personally, I'm an essay person. I'd rather do an essay. But I notice students who don't usually do the essays were actually participating in the podcast. So Christian Lobo Lafour liked how it got the other kids interested. Taylor Brooks lives right next to Globeville. She liked the project because it gave her context to where she lives. I can walk into Globeville and be like, it does smell bad because of this and this and this, and it does look bad because there's trash here, and I don't see any stores. 
it's better than just learning about stuff that you can't really relate to. The project did more than teach them about Globeville. Some began noticing the gentrification happening in their own neighborhoods in central Denver. It made them think about race and power. Beth Sanchez lives in the strongly Hispanic Athmer Park neighborhood, but it's changing. Last night, she saw people running around my neighborhood in their white and with their dogs and everything. For me, I'm not used to seeing people because it was nighttime. So, like, why are you out running? I ask what the signs are that they can tell a neighborhood is gentrifying. Here's Jose Roca, then Christian Lobo Lafour. There is no dispensaries. Healthy foods. Like, you get, like, kombucha. You get, like... (laughs) The kids talk about how they'd feel if gentrification pushed their families out. Bad. Why? Because I would have to move somewhere else. And I don't want to move anywhere else. Christian says it would be sad. Because in my neighborhood, literally my uncle lives on the corner. My cousins live down the block. My grandma lives two houses down. The connections students make to their own lives are thrilling to teacher Rachel Balcom. That spark is what we really want as educators, as Montessori educators, and as educators in general. We want that spark. And that spark has also encouraged two girls from the school to start their own podcast. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. The Denver Public Library has become an unofficial homeless shelter, and the main library downtown now carries a medication to treat overdoses. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis is following this story, and as part of our feedback segment, Loud and Clear, she's with us now for an update and some response to her reporting from listeners. And Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So first off, the library says it's going to increase security. Why is that? So officials at the Central Denver Library say the location has seen an unprecedented rise in crime, like drug use and violence. Hundreds of homeless people rely on the central location as a day shelter. They line up in the morning before the doors open, and many stay until close. So they're also dealing with increased sanitation problems. Okay, so that's something to address as well as security, and they plan on making changes. Like what? Well, they already have two full-time social workers on staff to help, but the library says it has immediate plans to hire four more security guards. So there will be 25 in total. Police are already coming by more often to patrol both inside and outside the building. And the hope is to add more than 70 security cameras if they can find it in the budget. Chris Henning is with the library. He says these issues should be viewed more as a Denver problem, not as a library problem. We are trying to do what we can do specifically for our facilities to make sure they're safe. And at the same time, help the city address these bigger problems, these societal problems, however we can um, to try and make an impact on that because they are, you know, they are just coming at us at a rate that we have not seen before. Hmm. It sounds like the library is drinking a bit from a fire hose here. Uh, you said those are the immediate plans. What about longer term? The library has asked for $50 million of a $900 million bond issue, which is planned for the November ballot. That chunk of money would pay for structural changes to the central library to increase security, like lowering shelves for better views amongst the stacks. And the library also wants to fence off the North Lawn facing Civic Center Park to make it a kids-only zone. Uh, Adults who aren't with their children are already discouraged from being around the kids' books. So what have you heard from listeners in reaction to your reporting? 
People feel strongly about libraries, you know? They do, they do. We've heard lots. We got an email from Jenna McKnight. She's a PhD student. She says she has stopped using the Central Library altogether because it doesn't feel safe. She understands that the library is in a very difficult difficult situation and, quote, I appreciate that they are trying to help our homeless population, but the city needs to find other solutions to this significant humanitarian problem. A public library should be a place that feels safe and welcome, welcoming for every member of the community. That's what McKnight said in her email, and she isn't the only one who feels this way. A fair number of comments online were from people who avoid the downtown library. Brooke McCullough lives in the Lowry neighborhood and recently visited the central location for the first time with her young daughter. She says they won't be back. You know, me walking into a bathroom with my child and possibly witnessing like a meth deal or a heroin deal going down, like, no thanks. We'll just use a different library. But did you hear from library girls who don't feel that the central location is a place to avoid? Yeah, actually, the comments on Facebook were mostly in support of how the library handles such a complex issue. Because as Chris Henning says, the library is a place for everyone. You can't turn certain people away. Mm. You can't tell them to leave or control who accesses what, unless, of course, they've done something wrong. Katie Holtz-Russell lives in Congress Park. She says she's been taking her five-year-old daughter to the central library since she was born, even though they live close to two other branches. I have never once felt unsafe in the library. I've never felt that my daughter was unsafe, but I think it has created opportunities for us to have real honest conversations about the Denver landscape and just what's happening in our city that are really important to me for her to understand. Hmm. So another way to learn at a library. Michael, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's Michael Elizabeth Sackis, who has been reporting on the Denver Public Library and its changing role in the city. I spoke last week with Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock about issues at the library, and you can hear that conversation or read a transcript at cprnews.org. And that is not the only story listeners are reacting to. Kelly Bruce Beard of Golden heard Breaking Bread last week. Coloradans with very different political views sat around a table to try to figure each other out and even find common ground. Beard writes, this is the best idea. People need to have civil conversations with those who have different beliefs. When you meet face to face with a person and hear their point of view, it can be really eye opening. Listeners pointed to other similar efforts, like the Civil Conversations Project and a group called Make America Dinner Again. Your feedback and story ideas matter to Colorado Matters. Find all the ways to get in touch at cprnews.org connect. Colorado is one of the first states in the country to make student improvement a main factor in evaluating educators' job performance. But it's not clear whether those reviews are actually helpful. See, 96% of teachers right now are rated effective or better. As we hear from CPR government reporter Allison Sherry, that has many asking how to improve the system. But these are our, our seventh grade. One thing really stands out while walking through Kearney Middle School in Commerce City. There is data about the students everywhere. Some of it is good, like the big colorful signs showing the seventh graders who jumped several grade levels in one year. And some is not so good, like a chart in the principal's office that notes which teachers have students who aren't improving. Principal B.J. Jeffers. When I got here, you know, data was barely touched, and now... I hope you see that everywhere throughout the building. Data has to drive the instruction. Data doesn't lie. 
Jeffers has all this data because of a 2010 state law. It made Colorado one of the first states to tie teacher and principal evaluations to student performance. At the time, the idea was revolutionary, and with help from the Obama administration, several states launched similar projects. But an unexpected problem has emerged: teachers may be doing too well on the evaluations. Of those who've been evaluated, 96% are rated effective or better. But Colorado students are not succeeding at the same rates. One third of college freshmen need remedial courses, and only 37 percent of third graders are on grade level for math. Britt Wilkenfeld is the director of research at the State Department of Education. People have asked, "Is this work a success? Is what you're doing worth it?" And I think it also depends on what your focus is. At the State Department of Ed, we're really focused on the whole evaluation process. And we think that all of that is happening at a higher level than it was before. But critics say the evaluations are too subjective to figure out whether someone is improving. These labels carry real weight too. Teachers can be fired if they're rated ineffective for too long. But Roaring Fork Valley Superintendent Rob Stein says that rarely happens. I worry that interest groups representing teachers try to make the scoring. As easy as possible to give everybody a satisfactory rating, which is what the current system netted for us. Years ago, Stein actually supported this idea to lawmakers, but since he's had to implement it, he's found the evaluations mostly unhelpful and really time-consuming. It's not a differentiator. It's not identifying talent that we want to reward or that we want to promote. Teachers' unions have a different complaint. They say the evaluations are often misused. Denver Teachers Union Director Pamela Schamberg says they can stymie creativity in the classroom. It just feels oppressive, and that there's just no time when they're not under a microscope, and a feeling that the district thinks that if they're not watching me every minute, then somehow I'm just going to go haywire, and you just can't trust me. But there are ardent defenders of Colorado's program. Education activists say that even if the evaluation system needs improving, the whole point is that teachers and principals are finally talking about how well students are doing. I don't think we can be too focused on the data, and if we do, we're really barking up the wrong tree. That's Scott Leband. He runs Colorado Succeeds, a group of business leaders working to improve education. The more important question is. Are teachers receiving that meaningful kind of feedback, and and that will help us understand whether or not we're actually meeting the intent of the law. And school administrators say something as complicated as evaluating the art of teaching may take a while to get right. In the meantime, many agree the conversations are helpful. This is Sarah Almi, the director of talent management for Denver Public Schools. Principals and teachers are having like fundamentally different conversations about. Instruction, and I know our teachers are getting feedback a lot more frequently than they used to, and so I think all of those are potentially really positive outcomes. Back at the middle school in Commerce City, Principal Jeffers says she welcomes the accountability, but Jeffers is the first to say the data about student achievements posted up and down her hallways only captures a small slice of what is really going on with the child. I mean, our kids are resilient and they're amazing, but they're coming to us. With much, much more than any child their age should have to have seen or witnessed, numbers won't reflect that. Jeffers is taking down all that data this month as she cleans the school for summer break. And in August, when Colorado's 3,200 principals and 53,000 teachers return to school, there will be a whole new set of goals, a whole new set of teachers, and a whole new crop of students to measure. 
I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Now, the architect of that teacher evaluation system is former state Senator Michael Johnston, who is now a Democratic candidate for governor. When Johnston's bill passed in 2010, some education reformers applauded, but there was also heavy criticism from teachers' unions. Well, CPR's Allison Sherry is in our studio now to talk a bit more about the political dimensions here. Allison, good to see you. Nice to be here. It sounds like this bill is a big part of Johnston's political legacy. Do you think it will come back to haunt him in some regard? Well, Ryan, you know, in the general election, likely not. But he has to get through a crowded Democratic primary first, and that could be tougher. You know, first off, activists pay more attention during primaries, and it's the activists who tend to be more sensitive to details in a candidate's history, like what bills they sponsored seven or eight years ago. Hmm. Second, in primaries, people are often making their decisions based on small differences between the candidates. This is because they already agree on big things like health care and taxes and whatnot. So these small policy differences can be more symbolic. I'm even exaggerated when there isn't that much light between the candidates. I know that teachers unions are often major players in Democratic primaries. So where do they come down on Johnston? I talked to the head of the Denver Classroom Teachers Association, Pamela Schamberg, about Johnston. If you remember from the story, Schamberg is not a fan of the evaluations, even though she actually helped write the criteria for Denver Public Schools. I asked her whether teachers will blame Johnston for the system, and this is what she had to say. There are candidates for governor that I think our teachers do not respect and do not support. But I also think it depends on how have they experienced this process in their districts. Teachers are a big constituency for Democrats. So it may be easier for those who aren't happy with the evaluations to go elsewhere with their support when there are so many others in the field. So his teacher evaluation bill might cost him some support in the primary. Are there other education issues Johnston worked on that uh, could resurface now that he's running for governor? Well, if you remember, Johnston was also behind the Amendment 66 effort. This was a tax increase for education that went to voters in 2013 and failed by pretty big margins. So I think it's accurate to say that Johnston has gone after things that haven't always been easy, and even he acknowledges that he sometimes fails. And when you take big swings, you're going to miss sometimes, and then you got to learn from those. So Amendment 66, you know, I think we we tried to fully fund the whole in K-12 funding, and the voters said no. Um, and so we took that feedback and went back to the next legislative session and said, okay, the voters want us to do what we can with the revenue that we have. And so we found a way the next session to make the largest single-year investment in K-12 the state had ever made. So whether these efforts, which have had mixed results, will be viewed as daring tries or a collection of misses will be in the eye of the beholder, I think. Here's Chamberg again from the Denver Teachers Union. He doesn't have much of a track record on anything else. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what it looks like in the, the primary, because that's sort of his one claim to fame is SB 191. And I think Johnston would disagree with that. He's pretty open about his this work and talks a lot about what he's learned from things like Amendment 66 and this teacher evaluation program. But he also talks about some of the things he's proud of, like Colorado's DREAM Act, which passed with some Republican support and allows undocumented students who attended Colorado high schools go to state colleges and pay in-state tuition. So in general, for voters where education is a big issue, Johnston will give them a lot to consider. Well, thanks for your time, Allison. You're welcome. Allison Sherry is CP. PR's government reporter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
In 2014, a man strapped himself to a balloon, floated 26 miles into the stratosphere, and cut the cord. Five, four, three, two, one. You hear that? Pilot is away. Pilot is away. Well, the pilot was wearing a suit carefully designed to protect him as he floated nearly to space and then plummeted to Earth at 822 miles an hour before a parachute opened. The suit's lead engineer was Jared Lydic of Denver, and he's written a book about this project called The Wild Black Yonder. Jared, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. And The Wild Black Yonder, because this man, a Google executive named Alan Eustace, went so far up, essentially to the edge of space, that it starts to be black out there, The Wild Black Yonder. That's correct. Uh, Somewhere, as he drifts up about 70,000 feet, the sky turns to a kind of deep royal blue and then turns black above about 80 or 90,000 feet. What a sight it must be. So in 2011, you were working for Paragon Space Developments. It's a company that makes space suits. When Eustace called and said, I want to skydive from the edge of space. And what did you think of his plan uh, when you first heard it? Well, companies like Paragon get uh, a lot of proposals like that. And uh, at first, usually... They don't turn into much. Um, so I didn't think much of it initially. But once we learned who he was, that he was this, this passionate aviator, uh, a Google executive with the, the bank account to do it, um, it started to get really exciting. And So wait, you get a lot of offers or proposals from people who maybe don't have the scientific or financial backup to the plan? Sort of. I mean, uh, you know, the space business is is really rich in ideas and getting something to actually happen is a, a huge endeavor. Because uh, you, you have to pick the right project. And what were the challenges in doing what he wanted to do? So specifically with the suit, there's there's three huge challenges to going to the stratosphere. Okay. Uh, the first of those is is really low air pressures. So we our bodies need air kind of squeezing in on us all the time. And the biggest reason for that is that... Uh, with, without uh, substantial air pressure, water wants to be a gas, and our blood is mostly made of water. Um, oh, so the blood could gasify if, uh, if you were in uh, the wrong pressure. Correct. At about 45,000 feet, the boiling point of water is the temperature of the human body. So your blood would literally boil. Uh, the, the, the other big challenge, uh, which kind of goes hand in hand with pressure, is we, we need oxygen to breathe. So we have to provide oxygen to the pilot. Uh, and then the third is extreme temperature. So uh, we saw temperatures in the program as low as negative 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and, and there were also challenges towards the top of the mission of, of Alan getting too hot, where there's, you know, his body is producing heat through the metabolic process, and there's, there's no air to pull that heat away from him. Oh, I see. High up, there's no air to wick away that heat. Correct. Okay, yeah. so this suit would have to be um, really flexible in a, in a very short period of time, right? Because he's going through such different environments so quickly. Yeah. So on the ascent, the ascent took about two hours. So in that, he's going through a, a slower, but still on you know project terms, pretty quick transition from the ground where things are kind of thermally normal up through uh, you know like the tropopause where uh, temperatures are extremely cold and the air is still thick, at, at which point you unquestionably need a some sort of active thermal control heating system. Okay, what did you call that? The tropopause? The tropopause, yeah. So that's the, the troposphere is where we live. That's kind of where where, where virtually all life exists and, okay. and all air, most aviation happens. Uh, and then above that, 
uh, is the stratosphere. So as you transition from the tropopause to the stratosphere, uh, the temperatures start to rise and the air pressures continue to drop such that you go from being really cold uh, to being kind of normal again. And mm. then if you would have kept going, you would have gotten too hot. Okay, so that's the uh, the rise. And then there's the fall, which happens a good deal faster. Right. So, yeah, the, the intense thing with the fall is, is you're going through all these thermal environments, like you said, extremely quickly. So in, in the span of four minutes, he's going from kind of uh, this thermal nothingness to extreme cold, blasting at him at 800 miles an hour, uh, and then back down to regular temperatures. And he did not want to do this in a capsule. He wanted to do it in a suit. That's correct. So so his big innovation, um, and I think what, what really pushed him to uh, believe that this was uh, special enough in the engineering world to be worth doing was uh, to, to get rid of the capsule or the gondola. And he, he likened that to a kind of scuba diving for the stratosphere. Um, and that having a person directly exposed to the to the atmosphere allowed us to, to kind of understand this super unique thermal situation where he he's the only person who's ever experienced uh, a sort of thermal equilibrium uh, high in the atmosphere, in the stratosphere. And um, yeah, and, and every project like this that's existed in the past has included some gondola or capsule. Now, um, were you terrified for him? <laughs> like, uh, I just wonder if throughout this project, you have to be thinking of all the things that can go wrong. And that's not just negative thinking. Like, you have to do that and then solve for it. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, as, as part of a regular engineering process, we're constantly thinking through what the worst things that could happen are. And you kind of have to mechanize that that thought process. And, you know, we use words like... Uh, you know, fault tolerance and uh, single fault tolerance to loss of life. And, and that's a, a way to kind of mechanize it and systematically think about it. But at the end of the day, you, you really are talking about someone dying and, and, and making quantified assessments of, of what an acceptable amount of risk is. Right. You used a test dummy as you were building the suit, but eventually you had to try it on a person. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Did you try it on yourself? I did. Uh-huh. So um, I'm anatomically very similar to Alan. Uh, I measured up such that I could wear the suit um, because I was an engineer uh, exposed to the suit all the time. I regularly uh, would would do tests in the suit, especially the early tests. And there were some hiccups, right? So the the very first um, the very first time I put the suit on uh, and we turned the life support on, uh, it was a different architecture than the the suit guys were used to, and um, it ultimately is a, is a pretty complex system of valves and diaphragms and. Uh, the head region is is uh, at a higher pressure than the the body region. So when I got in, the so suit, there's different pressure even within this suit. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I felt this pressure difference, and it's a very unique feeling. Um, and upon that, I, I communicated that I was feeling this this weird feeling. And one of the technicians responded by turning the the air supply off. And normally that's okay. Uh, the suit would be filled with air. Uh, in our particular ar- architecture, that was not okay. And the suit, the helmet, quickly evacuated from air, and I started suffocating. Um, as uh, right when that happened, I started swiping my arms. You know, we got to end the test. This is going very badly. And uh, the uh, by that point, the helmet had suctioned onto the suit because there was a vacuum in that region. Oh, yeah. And uh, the suit technicians came over and started uh, pulling the latch and weren't able to get the helmet off. And uh, so uh, several other engineers rushed over. And with about three people, they were able to finally pry the helmet off about 16 minutes after the air was shut off. But you, everybody was fine. You might have suffocated. Did you get hazard pay for this? Uh, no hazard no pay. No hazard pay. So this is an example of 
a private space project, if you will. And it means, I think, that you can be much more nimble than NASA. That's, that's an impression that I got as I read about the project. Uh, but does it also mean that you're just more open to risk than NASA? Yeah. So I think uh, I personally think both those things are absolutely true, that we moved it in an, at an incredible pace compared to uh, the, the project a lot of us had been involved with, which were government projects uh, before starting into this project, things that would take you know, months or years uh, under these strict process control, uh, we would get done in weeks. And, you know, along with that came this, uh, you know, we were walking this line between too much process and, and being fast enough. And, you know, we'd fall off to one side or the other. And um, there were times where we uh, unquestionably went too fast and, and put people in a, uh, in unfair place and to uh, too, too, uh, expose people to too much risk. I want to talk about the the trip up. So, how long does it take him to get up again? So, the balloon? A, a properly filled zero pressure balloon uh, rises at a very steady thousand feet per minute. So, okay. one hundred thirty five thousand feet takes a, a little over two hours. A little over two hours. And what is he doing in that time? Uh, so he's mostly just hanging there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we built the suit to be completely functional, even when he was unconscious. That was one of the requirements we added partway through the the program. So if he did nothing, we would still be able to bring him safely back down to the surface of the earth. Um, and he was, uh, what we heard from him after the flight was that he was mostly thinking through his emergency procedures and uh, enjoying this this pretty wild view of the earth. He could see about a third of the country all at the same time. Right. And then there is that moment where he has to be in touch with you and, and say, I'm, I'm ready to fall, right? And uh, there are some communication issues that arise. Right. So uh, another big challenge of a system like this is uh, communicating across these these really long distances. So on that final flight, he was in a heavy stratospheric wind moving away from us at about 150 miles an hour. And this was an incredibly tense moment because he was flying faster than the helicopters that were chasing him could fly. Uh, and his communication signal was getting patchy. And that communication signal is not only how we communicate with him, but that's how we send the signal to, to cut him down. Mm. Uh so we had in our procedures that we have to get a po- you know, what we call positive affirmation from the pilot before we cut him down if we're not going to go into these emergency procedures. And uh, at the exact wrong moment, that signal started to fail. And uh, so there was a, a long, extremely tense back and forth between the signal finally, but before the signal finally got through and uh, Alan gave his positive affirmation. And, we, and this actually was connected to the fact that you aren't NASA and you don't have access to like these protected government channels, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's a... Uh, we, ha- we operated on the public band, so uh, very low power. But finally, you did indeed make contact, and that meant that the balloon could be cut from him, right? Correct. Yeah. How did yeah. that work? So a, a pyrotechnic cutter, uh, a small explosive charge, uh, rams a piston with a blade on the front of it uh, through a cord, and that cord releases uh, what's known in the parachute industry as a three-ring release mechanism. It's a high-load release mechanism, and then at that point, he f- is in free fall. And he's in free fall. The trip down takes about how long? He was in free fall for about four and a half minutes. I want to play a sound uh, recording of what that was to Alan. I mean, basically just a lot of air moving around him. What we don't hear is a sonic boom. Would he have ever reached speeds to have a sonic boom? He did, um, and it was one of the things that was debated after the uh, after the flight was done. Um, 
We think that he did create a sonic boom and the the chase crews do all report hearing a sonic boom. We didn't have any cameras running or recording equipment uh, there, but uh, there's some really unique things. So he did break the sound barrier. He should okay. have created a sonic, sonic boom. He would not hear that boom and the microphones attached to him wouldn't hear that boom because it's, it's happening behind him. Okay. But it did happen. Yes. Yeah. Uh, here's what the control room sounded like when Alan Eustace landed. Green extraction. So green means living. Right. And he was extracted, I guess, from the suit or something. Right. So, so yeah, green extraction means no issues. No issues. How did you feel? Uh, I felt euphoric. Uh, it was kind of an out-of-body experience. You know, we've been working for so long. There's so much so much risk and, and uh, you know, that the whole thing is extremely tense. And, and, and that moment when he's on the ground and you take the helmet off and you see his, his eyes are open and he's smiling and saying things uh, just... Yeah, total euphoria. I think what amazed me, having heard more of the radio traffic, is how calm he was. You know, it wasn't like him going, woo, you know, the whole way down. I mean, he's very calm, cool, and collected, Alan Eustace is. Yeah, so in a lot of the, the, the operations, he was the most calm person there in a very <laughs> remarkable way. And you know, he, he's a very technically grounded person, and, and this was about the progression of science and engineering to him. He wasn't a daredevil. So what place did he carve for himself, sort of in the annals of aviation or parachuting or free-falling? Because I also think of the the Red Bull stuff that's a little like kind of like this, you know? Right. So the, the Red Bull project was happening in parallel to ours. Um, and they uh, Felix jumped kind of ha- about halfway through our program. Um, and I think what what's really unique about Alan's suit and what was really special to him was the fact that, that he was – exposed to the atmosphere and uh it wasn't so much about that that he went the highest but about the fact that he was doing this brand new thing where he's outside and exposed and experiencing this uh this this kind of view and thermal uh uh system that was unlike anything anybody had ever experienced and and i think because uh, felix baumgartner that's who felix is with the red bull team in 2012 it was different what he did uh he jumped out of a capsule so yeah yeah. And this notion of this suit that then adapts so quickly to so many different um, environments uh, made him a trailblazer, Alan Eustace. And uh, what's Alan doing these days? Uh, so Alan is still heavy into aviation. He's gotten, uh, he's been doing a lot of parachuting. He's gotten his helicopter pilot's license since since the jump. And uh, and the suits, is it true that it's in the Smithsonian though? That's true. Yes, the suit is in Your the, work is in the Smithsonian, Jared. <laughs> and and what are you up to next? We have about 30 seconds. Uh, so uh, about 11 of the, the core team from Stratex moved on to start a company called Worldview. And uh, so that company was founded by Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum, who is hugely involved in uh, the Stratex project. And we are building, uh, continuing to build stratospheric systems, balloon-based stratospheric systems. And we're about to debut a new vehicle uh, we call a stratolite to to do the same type of thing that satellites do, but uh, uh, closer to closer to the Earth in the stratosphere. Okay, so, but th- so this is uh, mechanized transit or or people that would be. So there's two arms of the company. Uh, there, there is a space tourism side. Yeah. What we're working on uh, right now, that the kind of next month period is debuting this uh, an unmanned platform that would do kind of the same. A lot of the techno- technological capabilities of of satellites, yeah. but lower. Correct. Jared Lydic of Denver. His new book is The Wild Black Yonder. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.